Everyone, I'm Margot Ferracci. Welcome to Heart and Hustle, How to Thrive in a Crisis. Today, it's my privilege to speak with Dr. Lloyd Vogelman. He's the founder and director of Cortex Company. That's a consultancy focused on building high-performing sales organisations. And over the past 15 years, Cortex has worked extensively with both ASX top 50 companies and many leading global companies. Lloyd is also a qualified clinical psychologist and he's received his doctorate from the University of London. Among a host of scholarly achievements, he's been a visiting scholar at Harvard University, a visiting professor at DePaul University in Chicago, a recipient of several international grants and scholarships, and a guest speaker at numerous conferences throughout the world. Lloyd's a published author of about 50 publications, and he's established, led, and played a prominent role in a number of professional human rights and civic organisations. Lloyd, thank you for coming and seeing us today. Pleasure. Good to be here, Margot. Lloyd, you're an expert globally in selling and you coach leaders everywhere. You're also a clinical psychologist, so you understand the human condition better than most of us. I think (laughs) we'll get to that. Let's say you do, okay? let's say we do. (laughs) What's the trap that we as humans, if we're business leaders, whoever we are, fall into when we start thinking in terms of crisis and using the word crisis? What's the trap with that? I think that's a great question. I I think the, the trap is that we think panic. We think panic and um, crisis, if I'm not mistaken, and I know it's a cliche, but I think if I'm not mistaken, I think the Chinese word for crisis is growth. And I I remember learning that very early on in my student career. But I think the first thing we do is we think panic and we must respond fast. Now, that's in part true depending on the nature of the crisis. So if it is a short-term crisis in which you are threatened, you do have to respond fast and you have to use your instinct. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, if we are purely instinctive around crisis, we make terrible decisions. Um, And so we need much more of our sort of prefrontal cortex, the executive function, looking at at the ways we go about things, uh, maybe even relying on process. Uh, I was reading an article uh, recently is, you know, when, when a plane is going down, pilots actually resort to a process. They don't just rely on their instinct. Mm -hmm. And there are times when we need process. There are times when we need to be slow in our thinking. Mm -hmm. And there are times when we need to be very fast in our thinking. If we're too slow and we don't rely on instinct, we will, in fact, die. So I suppose it's not just panic. I mean, there's so many dimensions to it. And you have to sort of step back and say, what type of crisis is this? How should I respond? But equally, how do I get the most out of it? And I think that's probably something I've only learned much later in my life. There is, you know, the definition in part of resilience is bounce back, uh, get back to where you were, rebound. And there's something quite limiting in that definition for me um, because it never tells you about growth in resilience. It never tells you about going forward. Well, going beyond where you were. Or, or going beyond. Exactly, exactly that. And and hopefully, you know, we, we get there sometime in our conversation today. But but as you well know, uh, I've had stage four cancer. And uh, let's get there now. <laughs> well, we'll get there if you want to get there now. And, and I think probably the, the lesson I learned was I, I didn't want to endure. I didn't want to just fight back. I didn't want to just 
be healthy at, at one level. I mean, of course, everything I wanted to be was just to live. Mm. But there was another part of me during that process that I wanted to get the best out of my cancer. Mm. Um, I needed some redemption in my cancer. Um, I needed to redeem it in some way for something much better. And that wasn't just change, but it was something that I needed to find beautiful in that process. And believe it or not, there were times when I did. I mean, you know, there were times during my worst forms of chemo, and I had some terrible chemo, uh, where I did see things quite differently. It was almost psychedelic at, at different at different moments. There weren't enough of those times, I'll tell you, <laughs> unfortunately. It was more pain and, and uh, horror. But, but there were times that were actually quite remarkable, where I could only, I had only the energy to stare at a leaf, and that was about all I could do. I, I didn't have any more energy then to do that. Um, but in that moment in time, I did obtain something uh, from that experience. So I think if you can go beyond uh, you know, not just get back to zero, but go, get much further than where you were, either existentially in the way you see the world, but also in the way you experience the world. I think you can use crisis well. And so how are you seeing that now? Of course, you, you're the owner of Cortex, mm. um, which does a whole range of things. Mm. You coach CEOs globally. Mm. How are you seeing, putting together the lessons from your cancer, which, mm. as you say, mm helped you go beyond where you were before mm. and applying that to the crisis that mm. everyone's calling it now. Mm. How are you seeing that play out practically in your business mm. but also in the CEOs that you coach? Mm. Well, I, I think both for myself and some of the leaders that I work with, I think we often fall victim to the fact that when we're anxious, uh, our decision-making becomes quite narrow. Mm. Um, we, we tend to be faster or slower, but we, we, we can't really get perspective. Good CEOs sort of know that. They know that their decision makings become narrower as a result of their own apprehension, their own anxiety. And so they can either tap in, very similar to what entrepreneurs and founders do in mm -hmm. one sense. Um, I find entrepreneurs and, and founders tap into advice a lot more than actually corporate CEOs. Mm. Um, and that's partly because they own the company. And so every single thing matters to them. And so if they can get an idea, they change their minds. I find that corporate CEOs tend to be a little bit more fixed uh, in their view. Uh, they've done things for a longer period of time. Sometimes they've got less skin in the game. I'm not saying they don't have skin no. in the game. It's just, it's a relative it's less. It's different being an owner. It's, it's, it's a relative less. So um, I think I'm seeing some people get too constricted and not take on enough advice. And um I am actually seeing some people make decisions faster. Mm -hmm. um, I'm seeing, on the other hand, uh, the exact opposite. I'm seeing some indecisive people. But I think this is largely the default and the crisis brings it out. I think the interesting thing that I'm also seeing is uh, a lot of CEOs are demanding innovation from their, from their people and from their organization. And yet, when the innovative solution is finally brought to them, they, they are the ones who back off, meaning... It is actually the leader who backs off uh, rather than everyone What's else. What's going on there? Oh, I, I think it's, it's, it's much easier to talk about doing or imagining things than actually imagining and executing. I think the, the fear of failure in, in corporate institutional land is still massive. And, and to get that out of the DNA of a culture, of a large culture, is, 
is hard work mm-hmm. and actually requires a lot of different types of innovation from the leaders in that and and equally you know the HR PNC departments and 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 everybody else involved but i think that's still a fear of loss and and pain and 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 pain the pain of the mistake is still bigger than people think in corporate culture there's a lot to lose as you say um, and then you've got owners who actually have to take the risks because if you're the owner, if you're the business owner, you started it yourself, you're the entrepreneur, yes. you have no choice. Yes. You've got to eat. Yes. So you have to take the risk. But it's also the, the owner has the the fact that they, they were the founder, mm-hmm. default-wise, they're more comfortable with risk. And yeah. so that plays out, particularly yeah. in crisis, things get magnified. Mm-hmm. And so you find that founders and entrepreneurs, that default characteristic actually gets magnified. Uh, in a crisis rather than reduced. Which creates opportunities. Which creates opportunities, yes. And growth. As and, the and, and growth and, of course, also big mistakes. And yeah. but, but equally, th- there are big leaps rather than small steps now for, for owners who, who obviously take risks. But, but they defaulted to that. That's mm. their personality. That's how they're wired. Yeah, this, yeah. this is not – you can't skill those people up. I mean, yeah. that's just who they are. And so as someone who must be wired that way because you're the founder of Cortex, and what have you had to do during the crisis to – Keep things going. Yeah, well, well, one one of the things that uh, we've done, uh, interestingly enough, and and it's th- this is me being uh, a founder who's been restrictive of my staff. We've been talking about we have tons and, and tons of material in our digital libraries on complex selling, uh, managing stakeholders. So outside of our small consultancy that we have. We have a methodology business that trains companies up in complex sales, customer methodologies, stakeholder management. And, and literally, these are methodologies that people buy on how, how to speak to a customer, how to build intimacy, how to speed up a sale. And our market has largely been corporate and institutional. And we've been sitting on this content for probably 10 years, right? And there's a whole nother market out there, which is the SME market which we've just never got to because we've all, always been too busy. And I, I've been the, the limiter on the growth there, really. <laughs> but they need your help. They, they, that's right. And, and actually, we made a decision, uh, and I don't know, it just, just became easy uh, in COVID time, uh, not because we were m- much less busy. It, uh, for whatever reason, it just became easier to make a decision and go faster. And we've set up a sister brand called Encore, which is purely focused, much cheaper, which is purely focused at the SME market. Now, I know it's now sort of trite to say, but honestly, that would have taken me a year before and it took us six weeks. One of the other things that that it's done, because I've been more busy in COVID, is I've stepped out of the way. So um, I think I've been the inhibitor of this growth. So what basically happens now is somebody tells me on a Monday morning what they have to do for the week. They then tell me on Friday whether they've done it or not. And I, I literally have instructed them not to take any of my calls on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Like, do not, if I phone you and I'm asking you how things are, I'm just going to hold you up, right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm the in, inhibitor of innovation. Here. Are they allowed to call you? They're you allowed know? to call me. Yeah. They, they call me, actually, part of our Monday meeting is, what decision do you need to do? Do, do we need to make that uh, we need your help with and that is blocking us? And that's it. And then largely what they're going to do for the rest of the week. Outside of that, I'm staying out of that business. I'm a serious 
I'm a I'm an interferer and I and I'm not a good interferer. So oh, saying that it's just really important for business owners to hear that everywhere. I really yeah, think it's, and it's, and all leaders to hear that as well. Yeah, yeah. That's that's great news. You talked about um, some of the work you do, which is about building intimacy. It just got a whole lot harder, presumably, um, because we're doing it over screens instead of in person. It can be hard enough as it is when you're in a sales process trying to build a relationship and yeah. and have a working. Um, you know, uh, equally profitable relationship. How how are your clients navigating mm. that? What's mm. the advice you're giving to them? Well, this is interesting because I think um, I think the medium of of Zoom and virtual communication makes intimacy harder. But I would say, paradoxically, this is the best time to build intimacy. It's never been as easy to build customer intimacy as Let's it is go. today. That's what we need to hear. Why is that? So so. Let me suggest the following, and actually, we we now have been running uh, probably our most popular course is in fact how to build intimacy, customer intimacy virtually, and I I think the reason is because because business is in crisis in many in many different respects. People are in crisis at different times for different things, but there's a level of distress in the community. Um, and of course, it's, it's up and down. But what distress does is it makes people fragile. Mm-hmm. And once people are fragile, they're more open. Mm-hmm. And once people are more open, there's opportunity for intimacy. You can't be intimate with somebody who's rushing around. And it's much harder to be intimate with customers when things are going well because they don't really need you. And intimacy is about depth. It's about revealing things about yourself that you wouldn't normally. Well, it's vulnerability. Yes, that's exactly it, right? It's about showing your imperfection. Mm. And customers are much more open to showing their vulnerability because Mm. their vulnerability is pretty exposed. Some of them are losing businesses or have lost businesses. Some of them who cannot, who will lose their business may lose their home. Uh, you know, there's distress at home. So there's massive opportunity here to build intimacy. The danger, though, I would say, and this is what we're seeing with our clients, is, you know, I don't know about you, but when I've been stressed, I remember exactly who phoned me and who didn't. (laughs) I I remember who's made a stupid little joke that I didn't need to hear at the time. They thought it was funny, but I did not think it was funny, right? I'm a pretty intense person anyway. Um, And... The problem now, of course, is that when people are speaking to customers and, and, and pe- the customer feels that you're not being caring or sympathetic or listening to them or you're too processy and you're reading from a script, that's, you know, that's a zero-sum game world where the customer now says, you don't care or you care. It's not, you know, maybe they didn't care. Maybe, well, maybe I can under. This is like it's high levels of judgment. It's do or die. It's do or die. And I think what people don't understand is the way they're dealing with customers now, as we would know for our lives anyway, mm. what we did five years ago, we, we, we now, you know, we, we are now experiencing the outcome of our choices from five years ago or 10 or even 15 years ago. How people deal with customers now will affect their relationship with those customers in five years' time. Uh, we saw that in 2008, right? We saw that in in the banking industry, guillotining of funding. Some clients will say, I will never bank with that bank again. Mm-hmm. Not not because you said no, but because of the way you said no, right? Uh, I, I mean, Because I've seen... of my vulnerability as a customer sure, at the time. Sure, sure. I've dealt with professional, I deal with global professional services companies. I've seen people there, you know, uh, who say to the professional service, I'm never dealing with you because you didn't answer my son's resume. 
like you just didn't even send a reply and I'm never forgiving you. And that was one of the most important things to me and importance and value creates for a lot of judgment and so does distress. As you're talking about it, I'm thinking, you know, now there's an assumption of vulnerability. As you say, before when you're going into a customer relationship, there's an assumption of success. Yes. That's why you want them as a customer. Yes. But now we're assuming of each other that we're all vulnerable. Yes. So that's the open door for you to walk through. But you've got to walk through it with heart. Yes. And you've got to walk through it listening and with care because you're going to blow it otherwise. Absolutely. And there's a big, I mean, we distinguish between listening and understanding, right? And I think listening is just hearing. Understanding is actually understanding the feeling behind the word. Mm. Um, and, and that's not easy. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's very hard for, 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 for people to understand. Ask any married couple. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, ask my wife and she would give you, this would be a very long podcast. Right? So we've talked about building intimacy, Lloyd, mm. and how it's different now. There's a massive opportunity, but the downside's you know, pretty dire as well. What about actually sales, getting the sale done in current circumstances? Mm. What advice mm. have you got for us there? Um, well, I suppose the, the, the difficulty that a lot of companies face and a lot of our clients face is outside of existing customers, how do they get to new customers? This, this is hell. Uh, it's quite hard to build up a relationship or to get a meeting with a new customer. So so finding mechanisms around that is important. But I suppose during any difficult environment, you have to go back to the basics, right? Which clients are you going to focus on and which are you not going to focus on? Because when you start, and we come back to our word panic, when you start to panic, you just want to focus on everybody, <laughs> right? So, that, so that, 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 you know, we saw that particularly in 2008 with a lot of our yeah. clients. The second is, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the iron laws of marketing, right, and selling is what are you number one in? What are you best at? Which product and which solution are you best at? Because that is it. You, 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 just do that. Just do that and do that in your chosen market, right? Mm-hmm. The third, which is really key to selling, and, and honest, honestly, it is a wonderful thing to, to sell to somebody if you sell to them ethically. Because I tell you the great thing that great salespeople do is – they understand that what a sale is, is solving a problem for a client. And that's why I love people selling to me, because I'm assuming they will tell me about things that I don't know, or problems that maybe I don't see or, or will occur in my future, and they will solve those for me. Um, and, and I think you have to come back to the basics. And so this now means, basically, are you very clear which is the most important problem for your client to solve now. Because the one thing we know about sales and complex sales, which is really the area I deal in, is that 30% of the reason people don't buy from you when they agree that they do have a problem is they do nothing. It's the do nothing client. They agree. They say, I've got a problem, but they do nothing. Now, how you mobilize that client is massive. But secondly, you can avoid the do nothing clients by finding the problem that is most important to them, which they want to solve now and that word now is critical and in cortex we distinguish between a trigger and a problem and the trigger is the problem the client wants to solve now versus a problem the the other is in this world of COVID, we we've identified four big things that happen one is that clients are distressed so this gives you an opportunity for intimacy but if you don't build intimacy you face the other the harsh criticism the second is they very distracted they're distracted by 
overwhelming noise, survival. lockdown, survival, this, that, depression, things happening. Uh, so your messages now have to be very punchy. They need to be very clear. They need to add enormous value. They need to be compelling and they need to be relevant. To get that value proposition, you have to practice that. Mm -hmm. that, that doesn't, that's not something you just go and talk to because you may only get one shot at a customer now. The other is, 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 is customers are disaggregated. Your market is disaggregated. They, they are out there. They're not meeting in an office, so they're not speaking about you. And so if you're talking to one person, you have to rely on one buyer or client to convey the message to another. And so your messages have to be simple and clear. And you need to know exactly what the decision-making process is before somebody purchases from you. And lastly, uh, the other D that I would talk about is desire. Clients have a lot more desire in COVID times and, and in a recession. They've got bigger triggers. They need to act on them now. And so if you can find those triggers and just speak to those clients, more often than not, they'll be the ones who want to buy from you rather than you have to sell. So I think some of those are the big things uh, that we're starting to see in the market. Um, and for each one of those things, I'd say opportunity to build intimacy, opportunity to be much more punchy about your message, opportunity to know which system you're selling into and, and what needs to be communicated, but equally know your trigger. You have to be a diagnostician. Fascinating, Lloyd. Fascinating. I'm sold, by the way. Are you? Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> you make it sound easy. <laughs> it is complex, but easy. Last Trust question. me. Yeah, go ahead. Last question for you, Lloyd. Yeah. No one's going anywhere at the moment, but everyone was going to go somewhere. So where were you going to go this year and what have you done instead? Well, I, I was actually going to take a mini sabbatical. So ah. I was off to Italy. I was off to Assisi for a friend's um, uh, son's wedding and I was going to meet up with, with uh, most of my friends and we were going, going away for six or seven weeks. Um, but now I... I love road trips. I've started doing that um, as my kids, are, I'm now an empty nester, so my kids have moved out. So I love road trips with my wife and we are going on a road trip and we are going to the New South Wales outback and places called Wilcania that I've never Wilcania. heard of. Wilcania, nice, you beautiful better pronunciation, Cobar. Um, and so we, we, we're going out there and I'm, I'm looking forward to staying on these stations and uh, uh, I'm very excited and I'm going to be doing, doing that in two weeks. And honestly, I feel more excited about that than I actually felt about going to Italy. To be honest, I don't have to get on a plane and I don't have to worry about my baggage and the airports and stress and strain. And I'm just, I've got my music ready and I've got my audio books ready <laughs> and I'm looking forward to the stars. Tourism New South Wales has absolutely gone growth, not crisis. Has it? Yeah. That's well, look at all the yeah, money that's, that's being true. spent. That's true. Dr. Lloyd Vogelman, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. I hope from this you've got some ideas and some themes about how to thrive in a crisis. Now, you can definitely hit the subscribe button if you want to hear more of the show and give us a rating as well. Thanks again for listening. See you soon.